is Alex. Uh, Cassie and I get the privilege of leading this little Jesus community, this family of God here in Kansas City. And I don't think Cassie mentioned this, but today is actually Midtown's second birthday. So yeah, that's pretty exciting. September 19th. 2021, uh, we had uh, kind of this kickoff service, this kickoff gathering in which we started gathering here as a worshiping community two years ago. And, um, you know, there's been so much that has happened and so much beauty that has come from us just continuing to gather and ask the question, what does it look like for us to be the people of Jesus here in Kansas City? Um, That will forever be our just little contribution to the city. Just we're going to come and imagine what it might look like for us to be the Jesus people. Um, It was not a planned celebration, but in celebration, we're having it chilly and uh, watching the Chiefs games right after. So we hope you can join us. Um, We hope this feels like family. We hope this feels uh, a little awkward at times, that there's like, oh, why are we spending time commissioning leaders? Because we think it's important to celebrate when someone is taking a risk and stepping out in the way of God. Sometimes it's going to be a little awkward because our kids are hanging out with us and they kick over a cup of coffee, but we think it's important that they watch their parents and their parents' friends engage in singing to the Lord. We are a family, and we hope that you feel and you experience the beauty of what it looks like to be the family of God in this community. Um, If we're not the community for you, there are lots of wonderful churches, and we'd love to help guide you into another church. Uh, But we are pausing our regularly scheduled uh, sermon series, so we've been walking our way through the entire biblical text, focusing on the places in which the Spirit is at work. We'll resume that in a couple of weeks, but each year we want to pause just for a little bit and reaffirm and reimagine our vision statement. Our vision is to reveal the kingdom of Jesus together in Kansas City. So over the next three weeks, we're going to chunk that up and just imagine and ponder and reflect on those, that statement. And so today, we're reflecting on that first line, revealing the kingdom of Jesus. Revealing the kingdom of Jesus. So to begin, I want to pose the simple question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Hold it in your head, think of it in your mind. What is the gospel? Broadly speaking, I think there are four common definitions of the gospel in American Christianity. And I don't mean to demonize any of these, I just want to offer a brief definition of each and maybe offer us an alternative. So the first one is the gospel of prosperity. Jesus came to give us principles to live by that will give us the happiest, healthiest, and wealthiest life possible. This is a common gospel in charismatic circles featuring flamboyant televangelists, but I also think there's a version of this gospel that promotes biblical principles for living life to justify exorbitant wealth or a focus on your own health above all else. It's a suburban dream. It's a gospel that is saving your happiness. The gospel of prosperity. 
Then there's the gospel of evangelicalism. Now, that term has become a little muddied in the last couple of years. So I'm using evangelicalism in the religious sense, not the political category. And the gospel of evangelicalism is Jesus died for my sins so that I can live in heaven with God following my death. It is the most common in Protestant circles. It's a gospel that is interested primarily in saving souls and getting into heaven. In this gospel, discipleship is an accessory to salvation. More on that here in a minute. Then there is the gospel of church attendance. Jesus came to establish the church. And if you are at least marginally involved with a place called church, you'll end up going into the good place the pastor talks about. This is a gospel of saving institutions. If I give my attendance a few times a year, I'll earn enough brownie points just to slide into God's favor. This is the gospel of church attendance. Then there's the gospel of social justice. That Jesus came to dismantle oppressive and unjust power structures so that we can make life on earth more equitable. It's basically the opposite of the gospel of saving souls. It's a gospel of saving bodies. And I'm not going to lie, it's a pretty compelling story for those of us with bleeding hearts. That is until we're done flipping tables and we're left to build something from the ashes. It's the gospel of social justice. Each of these gospel descriptions has a kernel of the truth to them. But to be honest, I do not think any of these gospels are robust enough to inspire the revolution I see played out through history. I don't know that any of these gospels are robust enough to build a life upon. Throughout the ages, the gospel of Jesus has inspired men and women on every continent to change their lives, to rethink their sexual ethics, to pray for their enemy, to build hospitals, to care for the orphans and the unwanted, to refuse violence and war, to rethink their economic habits and their relationship to the poor, to spend hours on their knees in prayer for the sake of the world. The gospel I see on the pages of history has been strong enough to inspire thousands to choose death over desertion. A gospel they believed more precious than their life. A gospel that was strong enough to inspire martyrdom. The gospel of health and wealth will not be strong enough when you face persecution. The gospel I see on the pages of history is a gospel that conquers empires. In just 300 years, a small Jewish sect called the Followers of the Way toppled the Roman Empire without ever once lifting a sword. The most, power, most powerful nation in the world toppled without a single battle taking place. In just a few short years, the gospel turned the world upside down, inspiring billions to follow the way of Jesus. How did that announcement become the uninspired proclamation that it's peddled in our day? 
I think we need to take the time to rethink the good news, to really actually think of it as good news. So I want to come back to that first question. What is the gospel or what is the good news? And the best place to begin with is the gospel Jesus preached. Scott McKnight says, if we don't start with the gospel Jesus preached, we may very well end up with a gospel Jesus didn't preach. So three quotes from Jesus. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Luke 4. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And then the text read over us this morning, Mark 1. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. When Jesus preached the gospel, he preached of the kingdom of God breaking into our reality. In Matthew alone, the kingdom is mentioned 52 times in a 28-chapter book. It's over two times, almost two times per chapter. In Mark, 20 times in 17 chapters. In Luke, 45 times in 24 chapters. Now, I grant you, John does his own thing and only mentions it three times. But anytime you read eternity in John, you could easily substitute the kingdom of God and find incredible continuity with the synoptic gospels. The subject of the kingdom is not just central to Jesus' teaching. It is the good news. Luke again, the good news of the kingdom of God. It is vital for us as a community to rethink our theological framework, to put the kingdom of God at the center of the gospel proclamation. To make a case for that rethinking and that recentering, I want to go through the biblical narrative, lifting this king theme of the kingdom off of the pages and drawing attention to its presence throughout the library of scripture. It's found radically all the time in Jesus's words, but this is not the first place the theme of the kingdom is present. And so we'll look at the biblical narrative in four parts. A kingdom established in creation, a kingdom challenged in the fall, a kingdom revealed in redemption, and a kingdom reigning in new creation. And as we examine the biblical narrative through this lens, I think the gospel of the kingdom will give us a better framework that makes sense of our own experiences within the world and inspires the same revolution in us as the saints that have gone before us. So let's start in the beginning with a kingdom established. If you head over to our website, all the sermon notes are there. You will be able to follow along pretty easily. In the beginning, God existing outside of matter and time speaks to the raw materials of the cosmos, organizing and reshaping them into the blue planet we call home. And towards the end of that creation process in chapter 1, 
the creator decides he would like collaborators to join with him in developing this new world. And thus he makes humans. Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now, if you've been around Midtown for any chunk of time, you know that we start most of our teachings in Genesis 1 and 2 because they set this theological framework that continues to come to the surface as we work our way through the biblical text. All of the biblical authors were incredibly familiar with Genesis 1 and 2. And so it sets up this framework for us to better understand the rest of the scriptures. And so we keep coming back to it because it keeps emerging as a theme throughout the text. And so to be made in the image of God, the thing I want to talk about, to be made in the image of God is to be a royal delegate a steward, a representative, a manager. It is to be given royal authority to take what has been entrusted to us and to cultivate it, excuse me, in such a way that all life flourishes. This is the work that God has given humans to do. The late Tim Keller has a profound definition for our work. Work is rearranging the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. In Genesis 1, that work is called dominion. In chapter 2, it's called cultivation. Our original work was to take what exists and rearrange it in such a way that life flourishes. So what is a town? It is arranging the natural landscape and resources in such a way that shelter, meeting places... And life can flourish. What is education? It is the arranging of data, information, and theory in such a way that life can flourish. What is art? It is the arranging of paints on a canvas or words in a poem in such a way that life can flourish. What is justice? It's the arranging of human relationships, institutions, and laws in such a way that life can flourish. To get to the point the creation of humanity, the, the created humanity was given the delegated authority to create the culture of God's kingdom. In the beginning was an invitation to create together, to create a culture together. But then comes part two, the kingdom challenged in the fall. The spark notes of Genesis 3 that there was a being in the garden hell-bent on taking the world for himself. That being revealed himself as a serpent and said to the humans, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the humans, thinking this must be a new guy, responded, we can eat from any tree except for, for the one in the middle of the garden. For God said, if we do, we will die. And then the snake lies. You will not die. You will be gods, deciding for yourselves what is good and what is evil. 
And as the story goes, humans partake and begin the willing insurrection against the creator and move against the kingdom he longed to create. This is the fall of the first humans, but this is also our story. That we continue to see God's kingdom's challenge by the same forces we read about in Genesis 3. And those three challengers are Satan, human sin, and death. Now, quick disclaimer. I'm a skeptic. And as I mentioned Satan, uh, it can be really easy to dismiss this as a sophomoric myth or something we have moved beyond. A holdover from a more superstitious age. But I would caution you from dismissing Satan and a theology of an evil one for two very specific reasons. First, the biblical story is only comprehensible with its villain in place. Try to imagine Star Wars A New Hope without Vader. It's not a very good story, and it doesn't make sense. Try to imagine Harry Potter with He Who Would Not Be Named. Like, try to imagine these stories without the villain. In 1 John 3, the apostle writes, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. When we do not truly understand who the villain is, we end up villainizing one another. Second, an understanding of suffering and evil makes more sense within a biblical framework that includes Satan. I think the Christian explanation of evil and brokenness and suffering in our world is intellectually defensible and emotionally satisfying. It honors human dignity and choice, and it doesn't just call everything a product of brainwaves, genealogy, or socialization. It actually takes evil and human choice seriously. And so that brings us back to the first challenger of the kingdom, Satan. An evil being hell-bent on creating his own kingdom, one who tricks humanity out of our delegated authority and our responsibility to create culture, and thus becomes the ruler of our world, John again. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, this is not my attempt to bring back the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s, there was a day in which people believed rock and roll would lead to goat sacrifice. Dungeon, Dungeons and Dragons was a brainwashing process, and Halloween was a celebration of the occult. I do not think Satan is trying to get you to sacrifice a chicken. I think he's probably working on you, getting you to lie to your spouse or to your boss. I think he's probably in newsrooms inspiring fear. I think he's probably lurking around the halls of power, hiding behind cruel policies, hateful dialogue, and selfish motives. Satan probably isn't red with horns. He's probably really well-dressed with great people skills. In the 1995 classic, The Usual Suspects, the villain of the movie who narrates the entire movie sums it up perfectly with this. Nobody believed he was real. That was his power. The greatest trick the, ev the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. 
Satan's aim is to take God's authority from us and to create his own world with a people in his own image. The second challenge is human sin. Sin is our disordered desires passed from generation to generation that become the weapons by which we harm ourselves and one another. On sin, St. Ignatius offers what I think is a helpful definition. He says, sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. The biblical narrative suggests that every human being, apart from Christ, has a rebellious instinct that consciously and unconsciously guides us. That we continue to perpetuate that first sin to choose for ourselves what is good and what is evil. And it's a fatal flaw that we cannot seem to overcome. And in some deep part of ourselves, we all know that we are broken and fractured in a way that's not all that unique from our brothers and our sisters. From our earliest days developing and socializing, we create these elaborate protection mechanisms designed to hide ourselves from one another, to shield our broken parts and our fractured personalities. We create all of these systems to hide ourselves from one another and to try and flourish apart from God. It's Adam and Eve hiding themselves with a fig leaf all over again. We long to be ourselves fully, naked and unashamed, but the fear of bringing our brokenness into the light always stops us. The second challenger to the kingdom is human sin. And the final challenge is death. The result of our pitiful insurrection is anti-life, decreation, death. Our original task was to cultivate a world in which life flourishes, but humans have rejected that task, opting to order the world in such a way that death abounds. Death is the final challenge to the kingdom of God because it is the antithesis of the paradise God imagined. Satan, human sin, and death, three challenges to the kingdom of God set on repeat throughout Israel's story and throughout human history. Cain and Abel, one brother kills another. A cycle of crowning Satan, giving over ourselves to sin and suffering death. The Tower of Babel, crowning Satan, giving ourselves over to, death, to, to sin and suffering death. The Israelites' insistence on a human king crowning Satan, giving in to sin, and ultimately suffering death. But in the 6th century BC, a man named Daniel joined the ranks of the Hebrew prophets, writing of one who might end this cycle of suffering and restore the ancient kingdom. This figure was called the Messiah, the Christ, the suffering servant, the son of David, or Daniel's title for him, the Son of Man. So part three, a kingdom revealed in redemption. Daniel writes of a vision he has in Daniel 7. And behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. By the turn of the first century, the Israelite people had come to interpret the writings of Daniel, Isaiah, and Ezekiel as nationalistic prophecies. The Israelite people suffered under uh, one foreign occupier after another and waited expectantly for their savior to arrive. They believed the warrior king would rise and overthrow the occupying Roman Empire in order to restore the throne of David and restore the nation of Israel to independence. And when Jesus shows up saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe, the people were ecstatic. But they were anticipating a return of David's kingdom. A human ruler designed to keep them safe, fight their battles, and committed to their interests. But Jesus' interest was in restoring a far more ancient kingdom, one marked by a plurality of royal sons and daughters who cultivate the earth and walk in the cool of the day with their God. And in Mark 1, the Genesis 3 story is put on repeat with Jesus taking the role of a new Adam, a second Adam. Mark 1.13, and Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And Jesus was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. That ancient serpent makes an appearance again tempting Jesus. But where the first humans failed, where all humans have failed, Jesus succeeds. And emerging from the wilderness, he sets his vision, his teaching, and his announcement on dismantling the kingdom of evil and revealing the kingdom of God. In Jesus, God takes human flesh and saves us from those tyrants of Satan, sin, and death. In his life, Jesus dismantles the throne of lies, casts out demons, and disarms the evil one. In his death, Jesus absorbs the sins of the world and offers a remedy for our shame through his blood. And in his resurrection, Jesus conquers death, promising all who will enter the gates of his kingdom a life after death. Paul summarizes this all in Colossians 2, verse 15. This is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. Jesus was brutal with these tyrants who had imposed their will on humanity for a long time. The gospel is the news that our true king has returned. One whose throne is a cross and whose crown is of thorns, but one whose kingdom is everlasting. And contrary to popular opinion, the kingdom of God is not just the kingdom of your heart. It is the kingdom of your life. It is not just some matter of inner belief disconnected from our behaviors or our public life or our interactions with the wider world. The kingdom of God pervades all parts of life. For it is the domain of God being exercised in our world. 
And it is a kingdom that is utterly unlike anything else we have seen. It is a kingdom that belongs to those who do not have a penny to their name. It is a kingdom of comfort for those who have been crushed by the weight of the world. It is a kingdom of downward mobility, favoring the have-nots over the haves. It is a kingdom where those who ache for justice will be satisfied. It is a kingdom where the powerful strive not to be served, but to serve. It is an upside-down kingdom, a new world order, all under the leadership of our king named Jesus. The good news is that the kingdom of God is in our midst and our true king has come, but also not yet. See, the gospel is this announcement of something that has happened, but it is also the announcement of what is to come. This is a theological theory known as inaugurated eschatology. That the kingdom has been started by Jesus, but it has not been fully realized. This offers us an explanation of the disappointments, setbacks, and suffering we still experience. Some have experienced miraculous healing, while others have not. American slavery has been done away with, but racism and human trafficking have not. We've experienced the Spirit's transformation of part of our lives, but not the whole. We live in the in-between, the already, but not yet. And a historic analogy to help us understand this concept is Juneteenth. On January 1st, 1863, President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, setting all those enslaved free. But it wasn't until two years later, on June 19th, 1865, that those enslaved deep in the heart of Texas received the news. They had legally been liberated, but it took two years for that legal reality to be experienced. Tish Harrison Warren writes this, We endure the mystery of suffering by waiting with bated breath for the things God has promised, for the, the kingdom to come, for peacemakers to be called God's children, for the pure of heart to see God and for God himself to comfort us in our mourning. In Jesus, we have been invited into the kingdom of God and now wait for our king to make that experience our full reality. What we experience now in part, we await in full. We await his return and a new creation. This brings us to part four, where I'm going to land the plane, the kingdom come in new creation. The end of our story is that every tear will be wiped. Every pain gone, the world healed, and we will live with God, and he will live with us in a garden turned into a city. If you read Genesis 1 and 2 right next to the final two, passage, or two chapters of Revelation, you will be unable to miss the parallels between the two. Our God started his kingdom in a garden with collaborators called humans, and he will complete his kingdom in a garden city with collaborators he calls sons and daughters. And I'm confident that it will not be clouds and harps, but culture, art, 
music, infrastructure, forests, murals, hobbies, and work. It is a future our heart longs for and the place where our joy will be complete. Dallas Willard says we are built to live in the kingdom of God. It is our natural habitat. The gospel of the kingdom invites us to wake up from our slumber and discover that Christ has conquered Satan, sin, and death. And that a new kingdom is dawning. That the God who knows the longings of our heart is building a kingdom in which we will call home. And Jesus is preparing a family of royal sons and daughters who cultivate the earth and walk in the cool of the day with our Heavenly Father. That is an announcement that can turn the world upside down. That is an announcement worth changing our life for. That is an announcement worth living for and dying for. That is an announcement that is actually good news. The whole of our longings finding their joy in the life of Jesus and his kingdom coming. Worship team, would you join me? One of the passions of my life is reintroducing disciples to the gospel. To see a heart come alive, to be reminded of the story that they first fell in love with. The good news as is that the kingdom of God is in our midst in Christ. And the question remaining is simply, what do we do with that information? And put simply, I think we heed Jesus' instructions to repent and believe. Now, I know repent and believe sounds like a billboard that you see on I-435. It might have some fire in the background. Repentance in particular is often a guilt-laden term that's wielded as a weapon. But repentance as it's used by Jesus, is an invitation to rethink everything. It is the lifelong process of exploring what we assume to be normal and questioning its consistency with the kingdom. It is the uncomfortable inventory of our habits, our attitude, our culture, and our assumptions to discover where I have not been transformed by the kingdom. This sermon wouldn't be complete with an N.T. Wright quote, so here we go. When we see ourselves in light of Jesus' type of kingdom and realize the extent to which we have been living by a different code altogether, we realize, perhaps for the first time, how far we have fallen short of what we were made to be. This realization is what we call repentance, a serious turning away from patterns of life which deface and distort our genuine humanness. It isn't just a matter of feeling sorry for particular failings, though that will often be true as well. It is the recognition that the living God has made us humans to reflect his image into the world and that we haven't done so. Repentance is an open-hearted posture rethinking the status quo. 
And each week we, re- we prepare to respond to what the Spirit is doing in our midst by praying an ancient prayer, a centuries-old prayer that says, we are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name each week, time and time again. Whether we mean it or we don't mean it, we come and we try to offer the full of ourselves before God. Each week we pray it, it could just be words you're praying because of the peer pressure around you. Or each week can be an anchor reminding us of the ways in which we've fallen short and the opportunity God gives us to be invited back into realizing what it means to be human before our God. We repent and we believe. Belief in Christ is an act of allegiance an allegiance that might lead us to do strange things in this culture for the sake of the kingdom. It is to recognize that the kingdom is already at work and to let this new culture transform you, which often begins with a subtle change in opinion, to begin seeing things the way Jesus does. Each week we renew our allegiance to Jesus by joining him at his table. The night Jesus would be betrayed into the hands of the Roman Empire, he took bread and cup. He said, do this in remembrance of me. These are signs of a new covenant, a new kingdom bursting the wineskin of the old, a new kingdom in your midst. Items as ordinary as wine and bread become enduring symbols of kingdom made available to us. And so week after week, as we gather around communion, not out of vain ritual, but because it is a tactile reminder that we are people of a different kingdom. It is a reminder of the grace and forgiveness poured out for us. It is a foretaste of our future home in his kingdom. I get it. When we do something 52 times a year, it can become vain. It can just become this, oh, this is the time we do it. But each week, each time we gather around the table, it is a sacred moment to renew our allegiance, to renew our belief and faith in the kingdom come and the king that it belongs to. It is an opportunity for us to anchor our lives in God's coming kingdom. And so when we invite you to the table each week, my encouragement is to treat it as sacred, significant, and powerful. Pause in prayer before receiving the elements. Pray with your spouse or your microchurch after receiving the elements. Commit yourself to Jesus and his coming kingdom. Take time to remember that you are being invited to taste and see that the Lord is good. So would you stand with me as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord? Let us be quick to confess our sins, for our God is quick to forgive. In just a moment, we'll pray the prayer of confession. Let's just take a second and hold our lives before the King in repentance.
most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Be reminded for the believer, the table is a feast of the family. For the unbeliever, the table is an invitation to take Christ. And at the table, we declare Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Let us respond to God by receiving communion, praying with one another or praying with a prayer partner and continuing to worship. Let's respond to God. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.